the thematic that we picked was let's build a business where we can build a product and charge customers money. And that was not a popular way of thinking back then. It was more about eyeballs. It was more about uh, ad-driven revenue models. We launched a paid version of PagerDuty in December of 2009. And we saw an increase and an uptick in usage and adoption and obviously now revenue, which is a little bit surprising because you think, oh, if it's free, like when more people use it because it's cheap or free. But it was a matter of trust. Like folks aren't going to rely on a critical service that's free and there's no business model behind it. You're listening to the Enterprise Ready Podcast, a show aiming to change the enterprise software narrative from how to sell to enterprises to how to build for enterprises. We'll interview industry experts and enterprise software founders as we break through the jargon, establish a common vernacular, and share the lessons learned from building the world's best enterprise software. Hi, I'm Grant Miller, creator of Enterprise Ready and founder and CEO of Replicated, where we enable cloud-native software vendors like HashiCorp, CircleCI, Sneak, and many others to operationalize and scale the distribution of their modern on-prem applications. Check us out at replicated.com. The Enterprise Ready Podcast is brought to you by Heavybit, a program dedicated to helping startups take their developer products to market. For more information, visit heavybit.com. If you're interested in being a guest on the show, or if you'd like to suggest a topic, or just learn more about enterprise features, find us at enterpriseready.io. This is another episode of the Enterprise Ready Podcast that was recorded pre-COVID, but the backstory and history of PagerDuty is incredibly interesting. In this episode of the Enterprise Ready Podcast, I'm joined by Alex Solomon, CTO of PagerDuty, a company that he co-founded, operated as CEO for several years, and eventually saw through the IPO. We start off by getting some of Alex's background, focused on his time at Amazon that helped inspire the creation of PagerDuty. We then dive into the pivotal early moments for the company, including their launch, acceptance into Y Combinator, and early customer adoption. Alex shares some of his thoughts on product assortment, packaging, and pricing, with some insight into the frameworks that his team used. Next, we learn how they recruited a world-class CEO to help take the company to the next level, and Alex's transition to CTO. We conclude the conversation on the importance of being intentional about company culture. This is a super fun show to record, so I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. All right, Alex, thanks so much for joining. Thanks for having me on. Cool, so let's just jump right in. Tell us a little bit about your background and kind of how you got into PagerDuty and enterprise software. Sure, sure. So um, I went to college for software engineering and I've been kind of tinkering and uh, enjoying programming from middle school. So my parents taught me way back in the day QBasic and then I got into gaming and started wanting to make my own games. Uh, so that's how I kind of got started down that road. Okay, cool. And then, you know, after college, I ended up working full time at Amazon as a software engineer. Oh, okay, got it. Yeah, so for, uh, at Amazon, uh, they were one of the pioneers of DevOps. And uh, this whole concept that uh, as an engineer, you're writing code, you're testing it yourself, there's no like QA team to pass it off to, you're deploying uh, these systems into production, and you're monitoring those uh, 24-7, and when something breaks, you're on the hook, you're, you're responsible for fixing the problem. And the way Amazon did it is by building their own paging system, it was actually called being on pager duty because you <laughs> carried a pager on your belt. And uh, when something broke, the pager would go off and you had to respond quickly. I think the response time was something like 20 minutes. If you didn't respond, it would escalate to your boss. So you had a very strong incentive to get on it quickly. 
So I, I carried the pager as a software engineer there, and I, you know, had a few incidents that lasted like six hours, eight hours, some sleepless nights, and that wasn't necessarily fun. But I saw the value of the DevOps way of working. I would call Amazon one of the pioneers of DevOps, one of the pioneers of uh, you build it, you own it. This mentality. And the way we got the inspiration for PagerDuty, it was myself and my other two co-founders, Andrew Miklas and Baskar Puvanathasan, and uh, we we all worked at Amazon. We all carried the pager. And after leaving Amazon, the way we came up with the PagerDuty idea was by thinking back from our Amazon days. What are interesting, useful internal tools that Amazon built out of necessity that would be applicable to other companies as well. And we thought back to the PagerDuty tool and to being on call and carrying the pager and looked around, did a bit of research, didn't find any any solution actually. Uh, couldn't, you know, tried Googling and maybe spent the first month of our startup journey just doing market research and brainstorming different ideas and trying to figure out what the competitive landscape looked like. And for the PagerDuty idea, uh, there wasn't any solution out there, or at least not one that we could find easily on Google. So that was kind of the the origin story, and also as a kind of funny anecdote, the domain pagerduty.com was available. So if it hadn't <laughs> been available, who knows where I'd be today? That's amazing. So you went to the University of Waterloo, right? Mm-hmm. Which like feels like there. I see a lot of founders and tech folks coming out of there. Like, why is that? Like, what are they doing at Waterloo? That's like kind of creating that that type of environment that's encouraging folks to go into this ecosystem. Yeah, sure. So I think a couple of things. One, it's a pretty intense and rigorous engineering program, computer science, software engineering. I did software engineering myself. And what that means is there's a lot of coursework, there's a lot of projects and you end up coding a lot. Mm. I would say that's one big element and you work on these projects with some of your classmates where they can take weeks or even months of you know, sitting down and figuring out these problems and learning Linux and Unix. I think even in our first year there, we had to learn that. We had to learn the command line and kind of get used to a non-Windows environment, if you will. Mm. And I think the the other big element is the way the program is structured. Is you do one term of school, which is like three months, and then you do one term of basically an internship, which they oh, call like a co-op. co-op. Yeah. Oh, interesting. So we had that at my university as well. Yeah, exactly. And it's it's actually not even optional. It's mandatory. It's yeah. part of the program. And at the end of uh, it takes a little bit longer. It's not four years. You don't get your summers off. But at the end of the program, you end up with like two plus years of actual real world experience. You end up coding in a real environment. You you work on real software projects. So my two last co-op terms uh, were at Amazon actually, and that's how I ended up there full time. That's amazing. I actually really love co-oping. It's like a modern day version of apprenticeship, right? Mm-hmm. Because you're in school, but then you're going to a job, you know, every four months, and you're spending that time in real work environments, solving real software problems or whatever you know that you're doing. Yeah. Because then you take that same experience, and you bring it back to the classroom for conversations, and it's like it's it's less theoretical and it's more practical. Yeah, and you know, you're coming out like I said with uh, the equivalent of not your first job out of school, but you already have two to three years of experience of work experience. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I forgot that that's one of the things that you really get because everybody wants some you know years of work experience, and getting that as as a co-op is a much Easier route than trying to collect that as your first job, right? Absolutely, and even better for me and in my my case and a lot of my classmates' cases as well is the last couple of co-ops or maybe the last one. If they like you, if you do well, they'll the give you a full-time offer. job, so yeah. you don't even have to go and hit the pavement and do, you know, twenty different interviews. 
That's great. Okay, and so let's just set the context for when this was in Amazon's life cycle. It's like 2006, right? Yep. 2006 to, so I was there from 06 to 08. So AWS was maybe just launching at that point? Exactly, yeah. So they launched AWS in 07 while I was there and I had nothing to do with it. But it was kind of a big deal and it came out of Amazon's experience of running these uh, big data centers and virtualized servers. They thought, hey, if we know how to do this at scale, we should make a product out of it. Right. They also launched Kindle while I was there, but I had yeah, nothing <laughs> to do with that either. But you are an avid Kindle reader. Yes. So, yeah. <laughs> so, okay, when you were at Amazon, you were on PagerDuty, like, were you using AWS or AWS like systems to manage the the, like the services that you would and what service were you actually working on? Yeah, so I was on the procurement side, so okay. part of the kind of supply chain retail side of the business. Sure. So basically, we had a, a several different services where we would cut the purchase orders or POs in order to order goods into the warehouse. Makes one sense. of the yeah, one of the systems uh, that I worked on was the automated buying system. So if someone bought something on the website and it was out of stock, we had to procure it. Into the right warehouse from the right vendor, cheapest vendor, closest vendor. So it was a pretty complex problem that ran in kind of a batch job in the middle of the night. So for extra added fun, uh, most of the pages or the incidents we had happened <laughs> around two, three a.m. when these big batch jobs ran, and uh, if it didn't work, it would it would page the on call. That's uh, you're like, can we just run this at a normal hour, please? <laughs> yeah. So you were working on one of these more. Almost like an internal tool in itself, in like this batch ordering process. Yep. And backend so, systems back-end that are system, pretty core right. core to the retail operations. Yeah. And and so that was deployed. Like, were you using sort of like programmable infrastructure in order to like deploy those services? Yeah. So it wasn't our infrastructure was not on AWS. AWS is still was very new, like brand new. Sure. And these are systems that go back to the '90s, like some of the first systems that were built at Amazon. So it was a little bit of a older kind of system. It was built in C++ on top of an Oracle database. Mm, okay. Yeah. Could you provision like new servers in sort of an elastic fashion? Was that part of it? We could. So Amazon built a slew of internal tools to do this. And okay. they, there was an internal tool for provisioning. It was all virtual virtual servers. Actually, while I was there, we did a big shift from moving from um, bare metal hardware to virtualized hardware. But not again, not using AWS, just right. the internal tools that, I, that Amazon built. But it likely inspired a lot of what AWS became, right? Yeah. That's really cool. Did you sort of know that that had happened? Like, okay, Amazon took these internal tools that we had and they launched AWS. Was that sort of a, a mental connect that you had made? Definitely. I saw that Amazon did that. And I thought also, like, the forcing function to me for starting PagerDuty was. It seemed like, rightfully or not, it wasn't that hard to get a job, and I, I figured like Amazon would always be there if I needed a job. Mm. You know, I didn't have any big commitments, didn't have a house, didn't have kids or anything. So, I uh, felt like the the timing was right to start something. And uh, my other two co-founders were kind of in the same place in their lives at the same time. So yeah, the inspiration definitely came from Amazon from thinking like, what are some of these really interesting internal tools that Amazon built in-house out of necessity that we were using? And we had uh, several different ideas. 
we we didn't have any ideas that were directly related to AWS, and AWS was like a brand new thing. One of the other things that they built in in house that we used a ton was their Facebook tool, which is kind of mm-hmm. like the employee directory, basically. Sure. So if you needed to know someone, someone's email, someone's contact info, their manager, it also had like uh, some badges on there, like if you won like one of the internal awards, like. There was one award around just innovating and trying a new project and solving a pain point at Amazon. You would get those badges on your internal Facebook. So we considered doing that one as well, but the the pager duty idea kind of really stuck with us because I think it was one of those things where it was the right place, the right time. Of course, developers should be on call for their systems that they're building. It was obvious to us, but maybe not obvious to everyone else. Sure. And uh, there's definitely a luck factor to be figured in here because the DevOps movement had just started, basically. And I don't even know if the word DevOps was that popular back then, but one of the first DevOps-oriented conferences uh, was just starting off uh, Velocity oh, sure. back in 2009, 2010. And yeah, it was right, right place, right time, picking the right idea uh, with a team that kind of saw the, the value of this way of working in, in, that, in that environment. Okay, so now... You have this idea, you realize like, hey, the rest of the world needs this internal tool. We're not locked down. We don't have like a lot of responsibility, you know, in our personal lives. So we can start a company and three of you break away and start doing this. So like I'm guessing it wasn't like instant overnight success. Like there were some challenges along the way, especially in the early days. Like what were the early days like? How did you sort of get your first customers? Walk us through those like first, you know, that year or two. Sure, sure. So, yeah, I mean, we started officially in February of 2009. We spent January just doing research and brainstorming different ideas and and trying to figure out what to work on. Sure, maybe this and, Facebook thing, maybe the page yeah, page. yeah, exactly. So, yeah. We had some ideas around. So, if you think back to 09, what were the hot ideas at the time? It was like Zynga, the iOS uh, App Store had just launched maybe like a few months or a year before that. So there were a lot of app ideas, but nothing really resonated with us. I, the thematic that we picked was let's build a business where we can build a product and charge customers money. And that was not a popular way of thinking back then. It was more about eyeballs. It was more about uh, ad-driven revenue models. Sure. I remember Zappos was one of our inspirations because there was just it was a simple idea. It was like product you charge money for it, and we never had any initial vision of building a huge company. We wanted to build maybe a bootstrap company actually, where oh, we can sure. grow out of our revenue. So we we knew we you know our domain was more from a SaaS orientation, building an online service similar to things we've seen at Amazon, and we just need to find a, a real problem to tackle and uh, start kind of a subscription type model uh, behind it to, to make money quickly. So we started in February of '09. It took us until the summer of '09 to launched the first release, the, the beta of PagerDuty. So initially we we launched it as a free service. We called it beta and we started, we, we just wanted customers and we wanted feedback and we wanted to start iterating. Sure. And what led us to launch was Twilio was one of the providers that we used to make phone calls for. Mm. So so I'll, I'll describe what PagerDuty did early on. So it's basically an on-call management and alerting service. So it sits on top of your monitoring tools. And when a monitoring tool detects a problem, it sends an alert. We aggregate all of those alerts from a, across a variety of different tools. Back then it was like Nagios was really popular, an on-prem kind of infrastructure monitoring tool. CloudWatch didn't exist. Datadog wasn't around either. I think New Relic might have been around, so they were one of our early integrations. But we were focused on a lot of the on-prem tools and like SolarWinds, Nagios, oh, uh, sure. 
and I sing on a bunch of those. And we built like a very easy way to integrate. So any sort of tool that can make an API call into our API or even send an email. Because all these tools, they end up sending email alerts. So we, we oh. thought, let's make it easy to integrate with any sort of tool so that we can get those uh, alerts and aggregate them. And then we can build richer integrations later on with, with the various popular tools. And then once that alert comes into PagerDuty, it becomes an incident and it goes to the right person and pages the right person, the on-call person. If that person doesn't answer, there's a redundancy, so there's a fallback. Uh, so there's a primary on-call, then maybe if that person doesn't answer quickly, there's a secondary and tertiary and so on. So the, the value proposition was uh, focused around making sure that when there's a problem, it doesn't fall through the cracks. You don't learn about it from your customers. You know about it quickly, you can detect it automatically. A uh, human looks at it and they can resolve it quickly. And the other value proposition, which we learned about later, was more focused around the quality of life of the people who are on call. Because we would hear this from our customers all the time, our early users as well, is we love PagerDuty. You help us sleep better at night, which is a little bit ironic when you think that we actually wake people up in the middle of the night for <laughs> to tell them that their their stuff is down. So, yeah, that value prop was around the creation of a of ownership and a process for on call. Because if you think before PagerDuty, what would people do? Well, they would all be on call all the time. So you'd page the entire team, which means that in practice, some people are going to step up and become the responsive, the the heroes, if you will, and others are going to shy away from that responsibility. Mm-hmm. And really, the load's going to fall on maybe one or two individuals. And it's not like a fair load balancing way of of doing this. And so by adding a process around it, by adding a, an easy way to schedule your on call, a way to like if you need a few hours to do something and get. Someone to cover for you, so that was all left up to the team to horse trade if they needed to, and it's really about the ownership, accountability, and transparency of the whole process, so that when someone missed their page, it was clear that they did so, and uh, and nothing fell to the cracks. And so you were users of this product, you know, previously at Amazon, so yep. you understood the problem space pretty well. You all had pretty defined opinions around like how this should work, and I'm sure that first version like reflected a lot of that experience. As like this, like domain expertise, right? Yeah, exactly. So, one of the things that uh, I, I didn't mention earlier, but I should mention now, is that Amazon's tool it was built on top of Remedy, which is their ticketing system. Mm. So, if it was a high severity ticket like a Sev One or Sev Two, that's the kind of major incident, and that would page uh, the on call for Sev Two. Was uh, there was definitely a business impact, but it was a more contained business impact mm-hmm. for Sev One. It was a major business impact, like. For example, the shopping cart didn't work, or orders weren't getting processed, like a major thing like that that impact directly impacts revenue, and that's more of an all hands on deck type situation versus just paging one person on one team. Okay, cool. So uh, when we went to build this uh, for ourselves, we really had to like it wasn't just a paging system; it actually ended up being an incident management and paging system. Right. So we had to build the concept of incidents because we didn't have a, a secondary ticketing system to bolt on top of. So we built kind of a all-in-one. We didn't call them tickets, but it was a kind of like a ticketing system, sure. an incident management system, plus the on-call management and paging element of it as well. Okay, cool. So you had that all kind of built and ready in the summer. Yeah, but it was a very rudimentary version. It's kind okay. of a very much of an MVP. So that first release didn't actually have. Incidents. Uh, to be very honest, it only had like 
So you'd plug in something like an Agios into PagerDuty, mm-hmm. and then you plug it into an object on our side called an alert, and that alert was triggered. It was either green, like no problems, or it was triggered, meaning there was a problem. Got it. But we didn't have the object model to understand incidents at that point. Mm-hmm. We did have on-call schedules, and we did have the alerts and the paging and the being able to get a phone call or an SMS when a problem like that would happen. But we quickly realized from talking to our early users and customers that. And, and who were your early users and customers? Yeah, so it was initially it was a few different smaller SaaS companies, more early adopters, and I remember one of the. Early, early customers was AdMob, which was an ad tech company that ended up getting bought by Google for close to a billion dollars, if yeah. I remember correctly. Yeah, and we had a few universities as well. So I think Rutgers University was one of our early customers as well. And they were just using it for free. This is like when you launched the beta. Yeah, they so were free we users. yeah it was for free, but we had pricing posted and and actually. Interestingly, we we launched a paid version of uh, PagerDuty in December of that year, in December of '09, and we saw an increase and an uptick in usage and adoption, and obviously now revenue, which is a little bit surprising because you think, oh, if it's free, like when more people use it because it's cheap or free. Well, it's a matter of trust. Like people, and we did get questions about this. Like, how is this free? Like, doesn't it cost you guys? you know, sure. money to make a phone call or send an SMS, and yes, it did. But it was a matter of trust. Like, folks aren't going to rely on a critical service that's free, and there's no business model behind it. So, actually, charging money led to a big trust factor for their with our customer base. Because it's like, if this service doesn't work, then I'm more screwed than I was before I trusted it. So, there's a yeah. lot of trust they have to have. Exactly, and it, it yeah. becomes mission critical. Like, um, yeah, pretty quickly because you're relying on you know your your major incidents and and the ones that need people. Attention, and there could be revenue at stake. In fact, in a lot of these customers, uh, depending on the application that they're plugging into PagerDuty, there is definitely revenue at stake. Think like an e-commerce application; you can actually measure your revenue loss in dollars per minute, potentially. Right, right. And so, you're part of Y Combinator. Is that is that when you joined? Is this were you funded by them? Did you have other like funding at that point? Yeah. So initially, we started the company yeah in February of '09 in Toronto. And the following year, so well, you were working for Amazon in Toronto or based in in Seattle? No, we were we were in Seattle, okay. but we um, so all three founders are from Toronto. And after Amazon, we all moved back. Got it. Actually, we all moved back in with our parents to kind of reduce the burn rate naturally. Know? Yeah, and then we started the company in Toronto. And then the way we ended up in YC was uh, by applying to YC the following year. But at that point, we already had revenue. We already had paid customers. We had like. Maybe a handful of YC companies as customers. Mm. So uh, we we leveraged that uh, our traction and our customers who are already YC companies to get recommendations and get into YC. Oh, interesting. Okay, so you were still in Toronto at that point. We were, and then uh, we got into the just summer. the three of you at that point. Yeah, okay. just the three of us. We were maybe ten to twenty thousand dollars in revenue per month. Oh wow, monthly revenue at that point and. I called it pizza profitable, like ramen profitable, yeah, but sure. maybe a little nicer. A little more, yeah. yeah. And so we were able to pay our at least the costs of running the the product on. We actually launched on AWS, so uh, the cost of running the the system. It was a few different. It was not a big operation back then, obviously. We got into Y Combinator for the summer 2010 batch, and that's when we made the move to California to Mountain View. Okay, and so over the course of just over a year, you bootstrap basically from zero to ten to twenty k in MRR. Mm-hmm. Pretty yeah. solid. Yeah. How are you getting customers early on? Just like from 
word of mouth? Like, what was the what was the primary customer acquisition? Yeah, good good question. So initially, and I, I meant to mention this earlier, but um, so we were using Twilio as one of our providers to make phone calls, and uh, Twilio was running a contest uh, every I believe every month they had a different theme for applications built on top of Twilio. Ah, cool. And one of the months was monitoring and alerting, which seemed perfect a perfect fit for us. So we rushed to release our first that first beta that I talked about, and we ended up winning the Twilio contest. And so they blogged about us, and they wrote a whole blog article about uh, PagerDuty and what we did, and that's how we ended up getting our first set of uh, beta customers or oh, beta users. Cool. And then from there, it was like slow going at first. When we launched the paid version, that helped because we pretty quickly, like that month, got to over a thousand dollars in MRR. Mm-hmm. And then from there, it was a lot of word of mouth, really. So the DevOps community was starting to really gain critical mass. There were a few conferences that started popping up. So I mentioned Velocity, O'Reilly's Velocity Conference, which was run in Santa Clara back then. And what were you like going to these conferences? Were you on stage? What like were you just attending or have a booth? What, what was your involvement? Yeah. There? So so one of the things that we saw instant growth from was we. Sponsored the Velocity Conference early on, oh, you and did? I believe this was back in 2011. So it's a little bit later. It's after YC, ah. but we sponsored the conference. We had a booth, and we sent like basically half the company, including myself, there to to talk to potential customers. Naturally, and as it happened, this is another lucky moment. One of our early customers had a keynote, and they mentioned he mentioned PagerDuty in the keynote. So that ended up drawing a lot of attention to us, and we got mo- our booth got mobbed by people wanting to learn more about PagerDuty. Yeah, and we in our metrics later on, later on that month or next month, we saw a big spike in in signups and and paid activations of PagerDuty. So we saw that, and uh, the word of mouth was like the biggest driver. We were solving a hair on fire problem that a lot of companies had. They were starting to put people on call for the first time. And even in um, so, as as uh, early adopters were adopting DevOps, on call is a big part of that. And even in larger companies, like more traditional companies with the centralized IT function, PagerDuty also served a function there of automation. Instead of you know picking up the phone and trying to call someone, it was all kind of handled through through PagerDuty and the paging and on call aspects were all handled through our system. Okay, so this kind of reminds me of what was probably happening before PagerDuty at bigger companies was that they would have like a, a knock, right, a mm-hmm. network operations center, right, yep. and those that would be a twenty four by seven operation where they're like monitors on all the walls and they're looking at all the output and like if there's an issue with some application or service. Then they like have a have a run book or a playbook or something. They would go through, try to solve it, and then if not, they would like pick up the phone and call whoever they thought should be called at that point. Maybe yep. a VP of engineering who would then call somebody else. Does that seem? Yeah, that's exactly right. So what we were seeing is uh, our early adopters were more smaller companies who are trying to adopt the DevOps, kind of like the first wave of cloud native DevOps oriented companies that were basically adopting the mantra of if you're an engineer and you're building a system or a SaaS a product, there was no ops team to hand it off to. You were the person who's who's responsible for this and operate and operating this. And if something broke, you had to, you know, answer the page and hence pager duty. And cloud is probably a big driver of this because those traditional knocks were actually managing like physical data centers, right? Yeah. And they absolutely. would have like real machines. And so you kind of had to have 24 by 7 on staff 
like IT admins to manage those machines. Now everything goes to the cloud. Anybody can spin up these services and you know in AWS, and you didn't really like need the same level of constant attention to make sure that the machines were up and running. They were doing that, but now it became like the application level, the service level side, and you would have Nagios or something monitoring it. But now you needed the way to actually like you know someone instead of picking up the phone and from the knock. Like PageDuty steps in to, to take over. Exactly. So that's kind of the flip side is the more traditional environments that had a network operation center, which was a 24 by 7, kind of like a, a big room with lots of screens. Think like the NASA command center that you may have seen in Apollo 13, like that kind of thing. They had a 24 by 7, three different shifts each eight hours. And when something broke, the folks in the knock were there. Uh, they were not on call, they were just kind of doing their regular shift. And when something would break, it would pop up on one of the screens. They would see something flashing red. They would investigate it. They had a run book, which is uh, basically means like, uh, oh, if this system is having this problem, here's what to do first. Here, if that doesn't work, here's what to do second, third, and so on. It's just basically a step-by-step sequence that you would follow. But generally speaking, what we learned over time is that the folks who are in these knocks are not necessarily the most senior folks. They're Probably. actually the lowest end of the totem pole. It's kind of more of an entry-level position. You're not necessarily an engineer or a coder. You don't necessarily need have a, the depth of knowledge on how to fix a lot of these problems. You can maybe fix some of the simple ones that are routine, but then if they are simple and routine, can't they be automated? Right. That's, that's the question. So we started getting into some of these environments as well. Not so much from the point of view of, you know, these folks are not on call. But if uh, if they encountered a problem and they didn't know how to solve it, if it was a more complex problem, if it was a major incident that was impacting lots of different systems, anything that's more unique and not routine, then they would have to escalate it and loop in other subject matter experts and also loop in leadership and maybe some of their VPs or C level type folks to draw attention to the problem as well. So PagerDuty would come into those environments as well through the um, the value out of automation. So instead of running a on calls schedule in a sprint. Spreadsheet and it's all manual, and you pick up the phone and you dial someone. And if they don't answer, you have to call them again or call someone else. Just send the create the incident to PagerDuty, and then it takes care of the rest and loops in the right person. And again, remember, nothing falls through the cracks. So it will keep bugging you until you pick up or someone does. Rewinding again, right? So back to that this sort of initial product. So one of the things that people always talk about with like mm-hmm. PagerDuty is like. How is paging people like you know this big problem? How is it a publicly traded company, right? Sure. I mean, I'm sure you faced that your entire like time that like the TAM, the total addressable market, just like isn't big enough. So, who saw the vision? Who understood like that the trend lines were all going in the right direction? And I, I mean, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm I'm guessing that is like the thing that. You, People have said to you for a long time, right? Yeah, a little bit. I mean, I think part of the problem is uh, the name of the company is PagerDuty, which uh, if you're not from this space, if you're not coming out of uh, more of a technical background, you may not. You think, oh, it's just paging. Like, isn't that a solved problem? But yes, there's positives and negatives to the name. Like, it puts us a little bit in a box. Like, uh, oh, it's just an alerting and paging system. Well, no, the name of the company is PagerDuty, but we we and we start. Yes, we started as a paging and alerting system. I mean, Salesforce does everything. So <laughs> exactly, like, it's fine. It's like I, 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 the, the name is great. But generally, I'm guessing that many VCs, specifically, like I say this because like I I hear this all the time about my company, right? Like, right. you know, what's the TAM? Everything else. So you had to have have heard that 
but like somebody got it. Somebody was like, this is a huge trend. And so how did they get it? And like, you know, how did you combat that that kind of conversation? Yeah, so I, I don't think we had too many questions about the the number of potential customers because we started by writing the DevOps trend. Yeah. And yes, that was fairly new back in 2009, 2010, 2011 where we were raising money, but it was also the trend of software eating the world. I mean, you've heard that phrase over and over. So yes, there are software companies and those are our early adopters, but every company beyond a certain size has to become a software company, has to innovate. And if you look at transportation, if you look at retail, all of these industries are becoming software centric. Even like ones like oil and gas, well, you know, if you automate things, if you leverage software to become more competitive. I mean, it's clear that this is a huge trend. And nowadays, you, you see folks who are on this uh, C-level suite of these Fortune 500 companies that have the title of Chief Digital Officer. So it's become, the digital transformation of the world was a trend that VCs understood fairly well. I totally agree. And I think hindsight, you know, huge market opportunity, software in the world. But software using the world wasn't a thing in 2011. That's when it like came out, right? So like yeah. maybe people just didn't tell you, but like I feel like people had to feel like this was because I've heard the same thing about companies like Launch Darkly, right? It's like feature flag as a service. We're like, how is that, you know, how is that a company? It's it's a great company, it's a huge company, they're doing incredibly well. Like they'll be on the same, you know, page of duty track as well to IPO someday. And I guess my thought is like there's this really interesting piece where you started like focused mm-hmm. and like that tip of the spear became like you found a huge opportunity with like this sort of growing market and like finding this pain point. So who who did your seed round? Who like cuz that that feels like the people that really saw it. Yeah, so yeah, I mean the the initial money came from Y Combinator and it wasn't a lot. It was yeah. like 20,000. So back then YC didn't put a lot of money into the company. Right. So it was, we didn't do YC for the money per se. I mean 20k was was fine, but it was more for the network, it was for the right. the help that they were able to provide. It was for being able to reach uh, a bunch of companies that are connected to YC or that are former YC companies as customers. Yeah, the and network, really, right? Yeah, and then the biggest uh, value add for YC for us was the a couple of things. One is uh, them and Paul, we work directly with Paul Graham, is him helping us formulate our larger vision. Because mm. we did start focused on on-call management and alerting, and he kind of pushed us to think bigger and to kind of you know, think, how are we going to become really big? And something that a VC would be interested in investing in, and then two, it's it's getting connected to the VCs and understanding how they think and and what they care about and what kind of questions they care about. Basically, like remember, like PagerDuty was started by three engineers. Uh, none of us had done any kind of business oriented. Like well, none of us were CEOs before, CTOs before. We're all coders, so learning the side of the business of fundraising was really important, and that's where I feel like YC helped the most. Oh, sure. Uh, first, they they introduced us to a whole bunch of angels and and investors, and part of the program was connecting us to investors to mentor us. And it was kind of like a two pronged approach. One is to get advice from them, but obviously, if they like you enough, then they'll actually want to invest as sure. well. So we got paired up with uh, Michael Deering, and we got paired up with James Lindenbaum, 
who's a CEO oh, of Heroku and one of the founders of Heroku. And they both helped us quite a bit. And James actually helped us quite a bit with investors as well and with thinking of the bigger pitch, the bigger vision for, for PagerDuty. And we iterated on that and came up with a larger vision. And it was pr- uh, back then, I remember it pretty clearly. Like step one was yes, on call management alerting. Step two was to expand to become a full incident management system end to end. So that includes everything from you have all of these alerts and events. How do you reduce noise? How do you group related things together? How do you like? Maybe you apply things like machine learning to understand that uh, the data set that you're dealing with, understand the blast radius of the problem that you're dealing with, and be able to maybe even predict some problems before they become like a huge outage. And then finally, along the same vein, it's around having analytics and understanding and learning from your incidents and problems over time. And then step three of the vision was to take on the big ticketing players. So back then, Remedy was kind of the dominant force. And over time, as we learned, you know, ServiceNow kind of became the de facto standard. So that was our our vision back then. And it, it's interesting because I've had folks ask me, like, is that, you know, your vision back then, like how how much has it changed? And I would say directionally, it was pretty spot on. Yeah. Like, okay, we're not taking on remedy or service now directly. Yeah. But we've been able to over the last 10, 11 years now build a end-to-end incident management system. We've gone into the AI ops space and built an event management solution. Our our product there is called the PagerDuty Event Intelligence. And it has the machine learning elements that I talked about so that you can predict outages before they impact your customers. And like I said, our, our vision, a lot of the elements that we came up with back in you know, 2010, 2011 are still true today. So I, I, I wanted to answer your question earlier about how do we acquire customers. So we, it was a lot of word of mouth. It was the emergence of the of the DevOps community, where folks were very vocal. They're on social media. They're talking about the interesting tools and and practices and processes that that they learned about. And PagerDuty came up in those conversations a lot. So what would happen is folks would mention us at conferences. They would talk about their tool chain, and PagerDuty was one of the critical tools in there because it enabled uh, the concept of full service ownership or putting developers on call. So that was pretty core. And then folks would keep talking about us and speaking about us at conferences and people would change companies and they would adopt PagerDuty at their first company and then they would switch to a second company and leave PagerDuty behind and adopt PagerDuty at their second company. And that groundswell just kept growing and growing. And I also remember like we were trying all kinds of things to acquire customers faster, like Google AdWords, display ads, but none of that stuff really worked. It was yeah. really coming down to what I mentioned before, which is solving a hair on fire problem, riding a kind of a wave. And for us, it was the trend of the DevOps methodology spreading everywhere. And it was that word of mouth element in that community. Yeah, that's really interesting. I think like you kind of mentioned something there about putting you know, developers on call or putting developers like in this sort of you said it more eloquently than I just repeated it. But like did you like write about that or did that just like did other people just like kind of present about that and then include you as evidence of that as a thing? We did some writing about it too and you know like we looked at what other companies had done and content marketing was one of these longer term strategies that we saw we we saw the value of like blogging and talking and speaking at conferences and 
doing this in such a way that it's not like shilling for for the company sure. you work for or for PagerDuty, but genuinely caring about a better way to do things. Yeah. And we did this, but what helped us even more was our customers doing this because right. it's always better to hear from the from the horse's mouth than from the vendor that has an incentive to sell you something. Yeah. And then so your customers are out there talking about their overall move to DevOps and everything else, mm-hmm. and you, and then like being like not necessarily, and we do PagerDuty everything, right? And instead, it's like, oh yeah, we're doing all these things, and like PagerDuty is an important part of this whole process. Yeah, it's actually better because you're like, it feels less like an infomercial and more like a here's the tool chain you should use in order to to make a similar transition. That's cool. Yeah. So now you're you're kind of launched. You're out there. When did you like? Become an enterprise software company because I'm guessing when you launched it, you didn't really feel like it was an enterprise software product. It felt more like a, a standard SaaS service, right? Yeah. So I'll tell you some of the thinking back then. So, you know, remembering that PagerDuty was started by three engineers, we looked around at, uh, at other software companies. And what we really loved about companies like, say, uh, I'll use an example of 37 Signals. Now renamed to Basecamp, but their whole mantra was around sell software online, make it easy to buy and adopt, start with a credit card, make it like self-service, because that's how people want to buy. And we really believed in that, and that's exactly how what we did, and that's how we launched. It was a free trial available online. Anybody could sign up. You didn't even need a credit card to start a trial, but uh, at the end of the trial, which was initially 30 days, you would have to put in your credit card to keep going and Keep using the product, and initially we didn't like. I, I was not a believer in needing salespeople because I thought, well, you know, it's and who would use this? Engineers. I'm an engineer. How do I buy stuff? Well, I look on the website. I learn about the product. I start a free trial. I don't like talking to someone. You know, I can figure it out myself. Like I like to kind of tinker and try it out. And if the product works as advertised, then yeah, you know, put in a credit card and you're good to go. And if if you need to call a salesperson, then it's clearly too expensive for me to even try. So. That was kind of my mentality back then, and it, of course, it resonated with with my other co-founders as well. And what we found in practice is that yes, that did work, and it worked really well. And companies would start with the free trial; they would start adopting, and then it was very much a land and expand model where they would start with maybe one team of people, and then they proved the value, and then it was spread to another team and another team, maybe a whole department, and then maybe multiple departments. So early on, some of our first customers were more. SaaS startups, and then we started getting larger companies as well. Like I remember, Nike was one of our early customers, and they started with three users on a credit card. And in the course of several months, they expanded to hundreds of users. And mm. at one point, they were running like over ten thousand dollars a month on a credit card, which oh, is funny. pretty substantial <laughs> amount was without it? having talked to anybody at PagerDuty, which is the the crazy part. Do you, Do you know if was that like a Someone's personal card, or was that like a corporate card? I'm pretty sure it was a corporate card. Okay, it's yeah. good. Yeah. I mean, a lot of miles to yeah. for that employee. But then, what was interesting about that journey is that yes, that worked really well. But we started getting more and more inbound inquiries of someone, uh, of folks, our customers wanting to talk to us to ask us questions about the product, about the infrastructure, about the resilience and reliability, because it's so important for a tool that uh, that trust aspect. Yeah, that trust aspect, and that you know the business we're in, which is we need to be up when you're down, and we need to be 
pretty reliable. We're like we build ourselves that that first uh, version of the product as the nine one one for IT. So you know you can't call nine one one and then it doesn't work. It right. has to work every yeah. single time. So it was that trust element of them understanding like can we really trust you? Is this a real company? Are they going to be around next year? So all those questions and also there's like the the kind of regular part of getting a deal done, which is getting a contract done. Now we had the, on the online terms, and uh, we thought maybe everyone's going to be fine with that, but it turns out they weren't. They wanted real contracts signed, and what ended up happening is I was spending more and more of my time on the sales side of things, helping our customers through this process, doing contracts, negotiating that, working with the lawyers, and then I realized like, well, it seems like there's a need here. Like there, this sales thing is. Yeah, it seems like we need to hire some people here because I have other things to do as yeah. well, like hiring and managing and setting priorities. And, and you're like, I've already done this fundraising and all those. I've other already things. done this exact same <laughs> contract negotiation three times, and yep. like somebody else can do it now. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So we ended up hiring our first two salespeople. I want to say back in 2012. And what was interesting about them is they're both coming out of an engineering background, but then had switched careers into sales. And there were folks that I had kind of gotten to know. One started with us as an intern, and then uh, midway through his internship, a co-op actually from Waterloo. Oh wow! He wasn't doing an engineering co-op. He was doing more of like started out doing market research and researching customers and figuring out who should we talk to at these at these potential customers really. And then uh, one day he asked me like, "Can I do sales?" So I asked him, "What do you know about sales? Like, have you done it before?" And he said, "Yeah, actually, I did it at Salesforce and Desk, and this is what I did, and these are the customers I worked with." And I was like, "Wow, that's pretty cool. Uh, let's give it a try." And and the other salesperson had joined about the same time. He came out of a different software company. He his background was he was an engineer at Splunk years ago, and then he went into sales. So yeah, he they were both technical. Like, they did, we didn't need to hire a sales engineer to help. Them do demos. They already knew the technology. They knew it pretty in depth, and they had the kind of customer relationship side of things as well. So after we hired them, and I believe they both started around the same time, around the same month in 2012, we saw a big spike in revenue. So it clearly worked, and it was a good addition to that self-service model because we were getting inbound questions, and then we can go talk to some of our larger customers, uh, the ones that were growing the fastest, and. Talk to them and figure out what's going on over there. How can we help you? Can we help you deploy faster? Can we, um, you know, can we do a larger deal? If we had to do these contracts, like they could deal with the the heavy lifting of that as well. So it worked out really well, and we we got one of them to specialize around the larger customers. So he was the enterprise sales guy, yeah. and the other one was more everything else. So mid market and below, and this all started by you asking when did we realize we were an enterprise company? Well, because our model started. With online self serve, but then pretty early on we started getting some large customers, and those customers we we started talking to our customers uh, certainly from a product development perspective. Like we wanted to understand, okay, what are your challenges? What else can we build for you? What are your pain points? What is Pager doing doing really well for you? And what what's missing? What features are missing? What should we be working on next? We started to understand that they had a lot of needs, and some of the some of the early questions were around like simple things like permissions and and being able to organize a larger account with lots of folks into teams. Like, can you add a element of a team so I can organize my people? I don't want a hundred people all in the same 
team, if you will. I want to be able to organize them into teams so that you can only see what you care about in, in the product, not everything. Sure. Okay. Yeah. That's actually really interesting. So the, the first some some of that first stuff outside of contracting was really some of these enterprise feature requests, right? And so it sounds like role-based access control was sort of that like first one in terms yep. of, hey, like let's put some teams in, let's or, let's organize and group people. I'm guessing like you know, if they had hundreds of folks, some kind of single sign-on, maybe or not? Single sign-on, yeah, absolutely. Okay. That was becoming pretty big back in kind of you know 2013, 2014. Or yeah, it was so. kind of just getting really kind yeah. of more popular at that point, I guess, absolutely. right? Yeah. Okay, so as you're getting these requests, were you processing them all pretty well, being like, okay, like these all sound similar, right? There's a there's the common thread here. Yep. You know, and these are you know these are generally the enterprise-ready features, right? These are, these are RBAC, This is SSO. Did you end up doing some kind of like reporting stuff, I get like you know, is that was that a feature? Exactly, yeah. So exactly right. Like uh, customers were asking, okay, I have all these incidents and alerts and folks on call and on pager duty. Can I see, you know, the number of incidents? Is the volume getting better or worse over time? Can I see it from a service perspective? Like uh, I'm running these online services or these microservices. Is the health of the service getting better over time or worse over time? What about the on-call pain? Like are are people getting woken up all the time or is it getting better or worse? So they wanted to see that at an individual level, team level, org level, service level. Like all of these were questions that uh, our customers were asking. And, and another way that we discovered some of these needs was. We took the approach of having an open API for all the functionality that you could do via the UI. Like anything you could do via the UI, you can do via the API. Naturally. And we, we that. made that decision early on from maybe our first or second year being in business. And it worked out really well because, as I think everyone knows now, APIs are really important. And especially as you have a larger deployment, uh, maybe hundreds of users, maybe thousands of users on PagerDuty or any other SaaS tool, like you're not going to want to necessarily like use the UI to add every single user, add every single team, add, add every single service schedule, etc. You would want to automate some of that via the API. So the API access has become important. And you mentioned uh, reporting, actually. What we saw with some of our early customers, I think Heroku, if I remember correctly, did this, is they leveraged our API to build a, their own reporting system oh, on top of it. So they were able to pull the data out of PagerDuty and then run reports and graphs and, and see, you know, are people generally happy or are they getting paged 500 times at 4 a.m.? So, so we saw our customers building this stuff on top of our API. So it was very clear to us, oh shit, we need a reporting module. So yeah. let's let's build that. That's great. Okay. And then did you make all these features available to every customer or did you do some amount of like sort of good, better, best like product assortment? Yeah, so we did that exactly. So we started out with maybe a single package or a single plan. And then over time, we ended up with three, like a, kind of a starter version, a middle of the road version, an enterprise version, which has all the bells and whistles. And over time, we uh, every new feature that we added, we had to consider: okay, do we want to make this available for everyone, or should we make this available on one of the higher plans? You know, the field of pricing is pretty; it's a it's a whole domain of uh, yeah, <laughs> interestingly, pr- pretty the, deep domain. The concept of product assortment, yeah. like on the enterprise ready guide. Actually, came from a talk that Michael Deering from Harrison Metal gave at at Heavybit, yep. you know, for that James started, and that talk sort of helped inform this idea. Like it was, just, it was so important to have good, better, best, and ultimately, a lot of the features that we extracted and sort of identified as enterprise features 
we're just from us surveying the landscape of pricing pages and saying like what falls into the enterprise category for these companies, right? Yep. You know, and ultimately, like it's a very common set of features, right? So PagerDuty is a, is a perfect case study of of all of these pieces. So yeah, absolutely. Okay, and so like those first enterprise customers, like did everybody still come in inbound, and you were basically upselling them over time, or did you start to do some outbound? And get some customers with bigger contracts starting, you know, earlier. You know, the first wave of customers definitely started inbound, and that inbound engine kept going, and it's still it's still going today. Like we still have an online self service model where folks can start with a free trial. The trial is fourteen days now, and uh, you can kick the tires, try out the full. Full featured product, like we don't limit anything on the free trial, so you mm. can kind of take advantage of everything and see how everything works. And we still get lots of folks uh, coming in via that channel. Generally speaking, it would be someone like from the technical side, uh, maybe a team lead or a manager trying out PagerDuty, going to a bit of the sales evolution of the company. Uh, I mentioned that we started out with no sales, and then we added our two first salespeople, and they were inside sales. So they mostly on the phone, email, kind of the the usual inside sales channels. And over time, we added this other tier of sales called a hybrid. Uh, so it's kind of a mix of field and inside. That first hybrid team was ba- all based in San Francisco, where we're headquartered. And they were mostly on the phone, but from time to time, for the right customer, for larger customers, larger enterprise customers, they would actually get on a plane and go meet them face to face. Because mm-hmm. there's an element to sales uh, that's all around relationship building. And a lot of companies buy that way, is they need someone to talk to, they want to see someone face to face so that they can really build that relationship and that trust yeah. with, with the company. Sales is, is still a human to human thing, right? Yeah. So. Software is not truly a commodity, and so there's a lot of sort of nuance to it, and, and trust is a big part of that. And so, like Absolutely. you, you build trust by meeting people, and, and it makes sense to go there in, in person. I'm sure you met a lot of customers in person and yeah. prospects in person to help to help seal that trust. Yeah, I would do, I would get called in on some of the larger deals. One of the big benefits of being based in San Francisco is because of a lot of our early adopters were software companies. I mean, that's the place to be. And it was yeah. so easy to just walk down the street and meet with Heroku and then walk a little bit further and meet with the next customer. And it was great. I remember Apple was one of our early customers as well. Mm. And um, back in like 2011, 2012, we went down to Cupertino. I had, had a few meetings with some of the folks there to understand what they were building, and they were going online in a big way with iTunes and some of their online services. So you know, it was a big driver for changing the way they they work and getting us into the automation side of uh, their operation center, their 24 by 7 operation, and then. Over time, uh, they started moving into more of a service orientation. I mean, now if you look at Apple's quarterly report, it's all about building a services business, not just a hardware business. And we play a pretty big role in that. That's pretty cool. And I mean, it sounds like there was a pretty constant drumbeat towards growth and towards like, you know, a lot of companies have some ups and downs. I'm sure there mm-hmm. was some parts, but like, did it ever feel like, this company might not work. Was there ever a, a moment of like, oh my gosh, like this is all going to go fall apart, you know, in a week or anything? Well, I mean, there were there were a few cases where we had some some stuff go wrong. Like in the first year, when we after we launched our free beta, 
we started getting some some early customers, but then for a few months there nothing really happened. Like we had maybe like a dozen early signups and folks some some of those were using the product, some of them were just kind of signed up and then abandoned. And then it was a few months of nothing. Like nobody was signing up. That's when we were trying like AdWords and like display oh, ads and some of those things to promote the product and get the word out there that PagerDuty exists. But and this is before the word of mouth really started rolling. So there were a few months there where we felt like, well, it's not working, but we haven't given it enough time. Should we pivot? There were some internal conversations around that, but we we stuck with it and it started taking off. Obviously, slowly at first, you know, it was exponential growth, but it was exponential off of a very small base. Sure, sure. Yeah. Okay, cool. And then, but I mean, since then, still pretty much like just. Up and to the right, like sales keep going, things keep going. Like, I mean, you IPO'd what yeah. last year or something? Or yeah, yeah, almost a year ago, last yeah. April. Amazing. Yeah. It's a very fortunate position to be in for that to 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 go so continuously well. So, congratulations! I'm sure you worked really hard yeah, to do thank that. Thank you. So, uh, let's talk a little bit about you know throughout that process. Like at some point, you know, you were the CEO for many years, right? Mm-hmm. For the first how many? Seven for the first seven years. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. But then you hired a CEO. Yeah. So, like, talk us through that, like. How, why, who, like the whole thing, like what made you decide that was the right thing to do? Yeah, yeah. So at that point, the company had gone to a you know fairly significant scale. We were over 150 people. We're getting close to 50 million dollars in annual recurring revenue. So we weren't like a small kind of pre-product market fit. It was clear we had product market fit. It was clear we had traction. We had done a couple of rounds of uh, big rounds of funding, a Series A and a Series B. And I was looking at the product side, and I was finding that I didn't have much time because I was, you know, hiring executives, managing, setting goals. I wasn't spending very much time at all in the field, like talking to customers, thinking about the product strategy. I just didn't have the bandwidth for that. Mm-hmm. And I also felt like, you know, we were we were innovating, but maybe we could be innovating even faster. So I I was kind of really I wanted to focus more on how do we improve our velocity to to innovate even faster. Mm-hmm. And just didn't have the bandwidth to do so. So that's what initially started that process and that ball rolling. And I initially thought, well, maybe I can hire a COO, like a chief operating officer, someone who can manage basically everything except for product and engineering. Sure. And started down that path of doing some research and talking to people. I talked to folks like James Lindenbaum and asked for advice. And one of the things I kept hearing over and over is that it's very hard to hire a COO that's strategic enough and can really own the go-to-market. And that the people who are amazing at that are going to command the CEO title. They're not going to want to work for a CEO, but kind of in this secondary role, if you sure. will. And, and I had met founders who had tried doing the same thing, and after a year they just hadn't found the right person and then switched tracks to replace themselves. And then there were you know other cases where C, like founders had tried to hire a COO and they did hire a COO, but found that they solved some problems with that hire, but created a slew of new problems and leading to that uh, not strategic enough thing yeah, that I mentioned yeah. earlier. So, so I didn't see any any cases really where it worked out that you could find a very strategic COO who didn't want that CEO title. So then I decided to, with the support of the board, switch tracks and and hire a CEO and replace myself. And I mean, it's a huge decision, obviously, because yeah. you know you're giving up control. You're 
you're basically trusting someone else to run the business and you would then work for that person. <laughs> so that was, um, I mean, the joke I like to make all the time is this is a bigger decision than getting married because if that doesn't work, you only lose half your stuff. <laughs> so, I mean, this is all or nothing. Yeah. So we, with the, with the help of the board, and Andreessen was very involved in this, uh, we have uh, John O'Farrell from Andreessen on our board, and they have uh, one of their recruiters is very, very strategic, and he, uh, Jeff Stump, he helped us a lot in the search, like really helped us kind of put together the criteria, what are the must-haves, the nice-to-haves, what are the goals that uh, this person would have for the first year in the mm-hmm. job, and then uh, helped us design a set of interview questions, and then part of this process was also talking to other founders and other professional CEOs to learn, okay, how do I hire one of you? Yeah. And what's how do I evaluate to make sure that I'm getting what's best for the company? And what we learned through that process is that the partnership between myself and this new person was really important. The cultural fit was really important, like making sure that they fit into the culture, that they don't come in and you know, maybe they're a great operator and a great CEO, but then they blow everything up and maybe fire the entire executive team and we have to start over. So those are really important factors as part of that decision. And then we started the process. We hired a search firm because, you know, again, this is a, a big time what you do. high stakes decision. Yeah. <laughs> and you have to get the best people out there and get access to the best people out there. And um it was not a hugely long process, actually. It ended really? up being like three or four months from the time we we hired the search firm to the time we made an offer, and uh, we we hired Jennifer Tejada, and she's been fantastic. She's been at PagerDuty now for three years, over three years, and she's helped us go public uh, last year, and it's it's been great. And where was she before? So she came out of a software background, and then before that, out of uh, Procter and Gamble, like way oh, back. Sure, but uh, she was at Keynote Systems, which is kind of in our space, infrastructure monitoring. And then she was at a software company before that uh, in the mining space, like natural resource management space. Interesting. Um, so she had, and what I, what I liked about her a lot is that uh, the cultural fit was there, and that she was one of these like maybe unique individuals, like you can call her a unicorn, and that she's really good at a lot of different things. Whereas a lot of the other candidates that we talked to is they have their specialty that they're good in one area, like marketing or sales or you know one of these, but they're more T-shaped, like they the more generalists who have expertise. In one area, and what Jennifer brought to the table is she had depth in multiple areas. Like she had a marketing background, she had a product background, she had run sales before and carried a bag. So it's like kind of a a unique uh, unicorn type of individual. Yeah. Okay. That's interesting. And then, and then lots of reference checks. Okay. That was the other part of it, especially um, what do you call back channel reference checks, yeah, where yeah. it's not one of the people that she would uh, give herself. But what was interesting is she basically opened up her whole Rolodex and said, "Call anyone." Yeah. And I ended up calling. I remember through the process, I called someone who she had fired in her past, and that person was still very positive. Really. So that was like, man, you never hear that. Like someone <laughs> who was fired by Jennifer and still gave her a raving review. Interesting. I can't imagine that if you called everyone in my past that you would get like all perfect, you sure. know, and me too, right? yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, like we've all like we've rubbed some people the wrong way, and we were young, and we did like did it the wrong way, yes. and you're like, oh man, like like you know, maybe I should apologize for that. But like when you called, like were they actually everything was totally positive, or were there some that were like you had to just like weigh it a little bit and be like, okay, I kind of understand maybe this person's a little lukewarm. No, it was it was all positive and, and really? I've never done reference checks. Well, first of all, we we were very so it was myself and John who was on the board. Yeah. Uh, we we 
we were on the same calls together for a lot of the reference tracks, and he said the same thing. He's done tons of reference tracks in his background, and we've never, either of us, have seen such positive uh, reviews <laughs> uh, with any other candidate. Man, I feel bad about myself now. Uh, sorry <laughs> for all, <laughs> yeah, all those people I've wronged. Yeah, I'll have to call up and atone so I can get positive reference checks <laughs> throughout my career, starting here. Okay, so that's that's amazing, and and she's. I, I'm guessing she, like bringing her on just took so many things off your plate, and you've just felt yeah. like, you know, just I'm guessing like a weight was lifted off your shoulders. Like probably just spent a lot of time onboarding her and yep. getting her into the in the business and all that. But like at some point, I'm sure it just started to feel like you were being, you know, elevated and and she was taking over. Is that right? Exactly. Yeah. So I spent a lot of time up front, just basically downloading everything I knew and and helping her onboard and and getting her all the, all the strategy decks, all the fundraising decks, all the kind of materials that we put together, board decks that we presented to to in our board meetings, all of that, so that she had the context and she knew. And you know, part of the, what what I think helped as part of the process is I was very transparent with what was going really well. A lot of things were going really. Well. I mean, we're growing fast, we're exponential growth, uh, creating a new category. So it was a lot of things are very exciting, but there were things that weren't perfect either. And I, I don't think any company is perfect, but I was very upfront and transparent. With the things that weren't going well, yeah, and I think that was maybe a refreshing breath of air, and it's part of our culture as well. We do want to talk about the problems and not kid ourselves that everything's all sunshine and rainbows. So that was part of the the interview process, and then when she joined as well, so that there weren't any major shockers or surprises or you know bait and switch kind of things. Like she thought she was walking into a perfect situation, and then things weren't so perfect once you. You know, once you open up the kimono, but I think that's so important, and I do it with any like somewhat strategic hire. Like, try to make sure they understand all the skeletons in the closet. Yep. Anything yep. else? Like, hey, here's what's going great. Here's where the challenges are. Like, and the candidates talk to you really appreciate it. And I think it also just once they start, it creates a much like there's a lot more trust. Absolutely, absolutely. So yeah, I spent a lot of time onboarding, and then it was really about the relationship and just communicating a lot and making sure one of the pieces of advice that I got before hiring Jennifer was around making sure that we're aligned and that you know I'm giving up uh, my position as CEO. I'm going to work for her, but I'm also on the board. So I, in a small way, I'm also her boss. Yep. And it's important not to undermine or not to like. Undermine publicly or make it seem to the rest of the team or to the exec team that there's a conflict there. Yeah. So I was very attentive to that to make sure that didn't happen. And I also love that idea. Like Mark, my co-founder, our CTO, I'm the CEO. So like I, you know, I'm his boss, like on that paper, but we made him the chairman mm. of the board. So he's also my boss oh, uh, in that regard. So like, you know, it's 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 sort of self-referencing in that same way. And it just kind of balances like there's no power tripping. It's like we we all work for each other realistically. Yeah. And and so you know you kind of mentioned like openness and and I know that you guys have published a bunch of interesting things like you think you published your security training deck yeah and some other pieces I think are really interesting things to share which I I love like so first like what are the different things that you have shared what some of that like top you know sort of internal things you've shared and and then kind of why yeah it's a great question so we. Started down the path like um, a little bit organically of publishing some of our internal best practices because we thought, well, okay, so we have an incident management and you know AI ops product, and that's our space and that's our category. So we we're pretty good at responding to incidents ourselves internally. 
We documented this process and we adopted elements from emergency response. Like if you think how um, firefighters or uh, other first responders uh, respond to incidents, some of those elements we borrowed from that process. Some of it came from our own past backgrounds, like at Amazon and other companies who are pioneers in this space. And we wrote down this process, and then one of our engineers ended up publishing it uh, in an open source way. So it's available on our on our site. It's actually response.pagerduty.com. It's our incident response practice, the one that we use internally at PagerDuty, and it talks about the things that you must do to prepare for an incident. You should practice this process. So if you don't have a lot of incidents, it's still a muscle that you have and that that is being exercised. And it's important to define the roles up front of all the folks that are in the incident process. So I'm not going to go into too much detail there, but check it out at uh, response.pagerduty.com. We call this a library of ops guides. So that was our first ops guide. And then over time, we created one on postmortems and why doing blameless postmortems is really important and how to conduct a postmortem analysis and investigation. Uh, We did one on operational reviews, like what are the metrics that matter when you're looking at your operations and your service health and your team health? And what should you review like on a weekly, monthly, and quarterly like basis? Like SLO, SLA. Yeah, kind of yeah, okay. that's it, that's in there as well. And then we just most recently did one on full service ownership. So this is like a broader concept around the the whole DevOps and how to manage services and how to put a new service like think like a microservice or application into production and what should you care about from the things that you should look at monitoring, alerting. Uh, incident management, continuous deployment, testing, all those things. And then how do you retire a service? Like you're not going to keep everything running forever. But yes, basically we we created a library of these guides and those are available at pagerduty.com slash ops dash guides. And as part of that, we also started releasing some of our training that's not directly applicable to, say, postmortems or incident response or incident management. So one of the ones that that we published is yeah. our security training, which um, that first engineer that that published the original ops guide on incident response uh, then switched teams and went into from SRE into our security team. Oh, funny! And he developed a uh, set of trainings for for internal use. Yeah. So one is for engineers, which is more focused towards the folks who have GitHub access and are committing code and what to think about when, you know, to protect PagerDuty from getting breached or anything along those lines. And then we also have a set of security trainings around for all employees at PagerDuty, which talks about like say things like password management, best practices, and making sure that you know you're aware of phishing attacks and things like that. Like we've had a case where when I, back when I was CEO when um, the CFO at the time got an email that looked like it came from me to transfer some amount of money to an account. Spear phishing. Spear phishing and very targeted approaches yeah. where it looked like it came from me because the if you're not Fakes, uh, paying attention, yeah. it looked like it was Alex Solomon from PagerDuty. But if you kind of dug in a little bit, you could see that it was a phishing attack. Oh, so so those do happen, and we've we've been targeted for some of those attacks as well because it's an easy way for an attacker to get to extract tens of thousands of dollars. From from these companies. Yeah, I'm still waiting for your CFO to wire me that money. So <laughs> hopefully he'll, uh, he'll he'll get that into my account soon. No, he's well trained. <laughs> <laughs> one one thing you said earlier that I, I actually I want, I want to go back to because I'm just interested. More of a like an architecture and infrastructure question for you internally. Like you mentioned, you're like we need to be up when you're down, and so like you have to take some additional layers of redundancy that most companies probably don't think about like mm-hmm. even from the perspective of like 
DNS or like multi-cloud, like, you know, so if AWS part is down or some Google, you know, load balancing networking thing is down, like, like how how do you approach that inside of PagerDuty? Yeah, and that's a great question because this is something that we were focused on from early days, is how do we make sure that we architect a distributed, resilient system so that we can actually, one of the early design goals was to be able to survive a data center outage. Mm-hmm. So we're using AWS, and then over time we added a second provider too, so now we're on AWS and Azure. Okay, interesting. And we can survive, like uh, think like a full availability zone goes offline, which uh, in the early days of AWS it did happen a couple a times. times yeah. Nowadays AWS has gotten much better, but that was one of our early design criteria is let's make sure that this the system is active active or parts of the system now that were service oriented and with lots of microservices so part of the system is active active part of the system is active with a backup and we can do a quick failover sure and i would say we think of the system in terms of what are the configuration parts of PagerDuty, like things that you would configure and then kind of change once in a while, and mm. what are the real-time aspects of PagerDuty. So things like us ingesting alerts and events from a variety of different tools, processing those, making those into alerts and incidents, and then once an incident is created, making sure that the right people know about it, whether they get paged or they get notified in some other way. So dispatching SMS and phone calls and push notifications and all of that. That's our real-time portion of the system. And we have different availability requirements based on what part of the system we're talking about. So for those real-time components, that's a tier one very business-critical portion of the system. So that needs to be basically like we target four nines of availability in that, uh, meaning that the number of requests have to be, you know, 99.99% have to be processed successfully. And really, our bar is even higher than that. We're like we're we're targeting like five nines, but that's so hard to achieve that our our kind of internal goal is four nines. <laughs> but yeah, that that's a really important aspect. And then over time, we also added the availability of the UI to the same level, like has to be four nines available because a lot of our customers are relying on the UI. And when let's say notifications work, but the UI is down, how then do they you can't, handle it? Yeah, they can't see. Okay, who's on call? Who, yeah. I forgot Bob's phone number. How do I look it up? PagerDuty is my directory for yeah. everyone's up-to-date contact information. And if the app doesn't work or the web UI doesn't work, then I can't look them up. I can't do anything. So that's kind of a problem too. And um, our customers don't like that. So then that's a very high availability. It's also a tier one service. And then we have other components of the service. Maybe one of our newer products doesn't have so much usage or something that doesn't necessarily need to be real-time available all the time. So, so let's say a reporting module. Well, if it's down for like 10 minutes, it's not the end of, it's not good, but it's not the end of the world. You can look at the report a little bit later. Whereas getting not getting paged for a critical incident is kind of a major deal. So yeah. that needs to work. Okay, interesting. But yeah, active active in a lot of our uh, parts yes. of the system. And for the notification component, so like sending out SMSs and making phone calls and even push notifications and emails, we have lots of uh, redundant providers because now we no, have no longer just Twilio. No, no, no. Uh, even from early days, like Twilio, the first version of Twilio didn't send SMS. So we had to use more than Twilio anyways. 
So they added SMS pretty quickly thereafter, yeah. but we were using kind of that early, earlier iteration. Mm-hmm. So we have something like four or five different phone providers and like eight or nine different uh, SMS providers and multiple email providers, multiple DNS providers, and we can actually do things like in India if this network, like their version of Verizon, doesn't work, then we can flip it over to a different provider. Oh wow! So we're we're pretty sophisticated, and we have like a rules rules based engine that can do that, and can also detect if the SMS or the phone call didn't go through, then we can try a different provider and fail over. So a lot of work has gone into that for us. Yeah, it sounds like that wasn't part of the, the initial, you know, version, you know, uh, <laughs> 10 years <laughs> no. ago, but like over time it's become yeah. really important and that's that's cool. And I'm sure like that these are the kind of gotcha questions that customers have asked over time oh, yeah. and you just keep like adding in deeper and deeper and more and more and people are like Okay, yeah, that's like that answers all my questions. Yeah, right. And when I, I remember early, early days, like 2011, when it was just like less than 10 of us, we had a problem with one of our providers. I think it was Twilio, but yeah. I don't remember for sure. And what we ended up doing, the volume wasn't that high in terms of our, how, how many customers we had and the pages that were going out all the time. So we ended up like pulling out the admin console and making the calls ourselves. <laughs> So we were using a whiteboard, <laughs> writing down the phone number, and like calling the person, saying, "Hi, it's Alex from PagerDuty. Well, you actually have an incident, right?" Now. <laughs> That's amazing. Um, our phone provider doesn't work, but we're handling this manually for yeah. you. It was kind of cool, and a lot of our customers, the early customers, got a kick out of that. That's amazing. And how 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 long was it out for? Like hours or? Like, it was maybe an hour or something okay. like that. Yeah. That's great. I mean, you figured it out, right? Like, yeah. hey, we've got their phone number. I've got a phone. Exactly. Let's call them. I learned that my phone can't call internationally without calling like Verizon and enabling that feature. But hey, <laughs> <laughs> it's racked up some phone bills too. Yep. Cool. And then you, you kind of mentioned some other products. Like, is PagerDuty like a multi-product? Do you have multiple products, or is it kind of the core product with some add-ons? How do you think about that? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. So we we started with one single product and multiple tiers, like right. the, going back to the good, better, best packaging, and then over time we added additional products. Now, mm. I think I would call them more of an add-on, like you need to have the base platform, Got it. And, and then you can add additional products on top. So the base platform handles the incident management yep. and on-call piece of it, so everything from ingesting events, processing them, creating incidents, making sure that the on-call folks get paged quickly, and then we've added additional modules, so one of the modules is around stakeholder communication, and what we call our business communication module. So this is around, well, you have folks inside the business that are not on call, they're, they're not hands-on keyboard fixing problems, not engineers, but they need to know what's going on when there is an incident or if the service is being impacted. So think anyone who's in management or maybe on the exec side, maybe anyone who's customer-facing like sales or uh, support or customer success, they're going to get potentially calls from customers and they shouldn't learn from customers that they're, or they're, they're having a service outage. So it's about making sure that anyone who needs to know about an outage or an incident or a major incident that's impacting the business knows and that they know what the impact is, they know that the right people are working on it, and they know there's a constant proactive way that they're getting updates. Because otherwise, what can happen is these folks can 
like let's say the CTO, I'm a CTO, so mm-hmm. let's say the CTO learns about an incident, happens to learn about an incident in a non-proactive way, then they can end up jumping on the conference bridge and asking a whole bunch of questions where there's a whole bunch of engineers on that bridge trying to resolve the incident. And uh, they end up derailing the resolution effort because they're asking all these questions. And they're, they're well-intended, but they're not helping. They're, they're actually distracting away from that resolution effort. So uh, we believe from a best practice standpoint that there should be a... A uh, line of communication that goes around the team that's actually responsible for resolving the problem, and that should be handled through a process. And there should be a separate process for business communications mm-hmm. and for letting the stakeholders know what's going on in a proactive way. So that's one of the modules. And then there's one around event intelligence, which is our AI ops solution. So this right. is all around being able to predict incidents before they become these big outages based on past uh, incident data. It's also around noise reduction. So if you have all of this alert noise and event noise, what matters and what doesn't, and being able to kind of triage this and realize, oh, this is just a transient thing that's not really that important, whereas this really matters, and being able to prioritize that and, and do the right thing based on that. Is it an all-hands-on-deck like major incident that needs multiple teams, or is this something that you can look at tomorrow, you don't need to be paged in the middle of the night for? And how did you decide to make these kind of separate products versus like features? Like how do you how do you differentiate? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, uh, part of it is we do a lot of customer research and we do a lot of customer interviews to ask them, hey, you know, do you want this? Do you need this? What problems would this solve for you? We've actually in the past also relied on a firm that does a lot of this pricing research as a consultancy. Mm. This is what they do is they they help you do these pricing analyses and help you understand what's the perceived value of a product and how much you can charge for a product. We're actually going through one of these repricing exercises right now where we might actually go rebundle some of these. So, mm. spoiler alert, we might end up taking some of these products and maybe then baking them into the core platform. We're not sure yet, but yeah. that's definitely a possibility. Okay, because today it's like you kind of have these different tiers and then you can add on these like four different products a la carte. Yeah, and it's also a matter of you know what do most customers care about? Yeah, because if they all kind of fall into the same bucket or there's a lot of similarities, then you can just create a package for that. But the a la carte uh, model has its advantages too, because if a customer doesn't value a thing, but they have to pay for it anyways because they want like one feature. Let's say it's it's a package that comes with ten different features. They only want one feature, so then they're angry that they're paying for these nine other things, and then they ask you, "Can you make a custom plan just for me so I can pay less?" Because I only want this one feature, so you end up with those conversations. So, so as true. Well. <laughs> and they're like, "I don't need that one feature. Can I have a, a lesser price?" Yes. For that same thing, minus that feature, and you're like, "Not really. It's kind of all <laughs> part of the package." It's like exactly. we put these things together. It's like I know you don't necessarily, need it, but you're gonna need it at some point. Yes. It's funny. Pricing is hard. Pricing is like it is. you know, it's never you're never gonna nail it 100. percent And you know, you try to. Try to capture some value that, that you're providing without like, you know, feeling extractive or like overly, you know, like no one wants to be Oracle in that yeah. like world where everyone feels like Oracle is just like taking their pound of flesh every time. You want a feeling of reciprocation where like you're giving somebody something that they love and appreciate and they're reciprocating by paying you. Yeah. Right. Yeah, and I, I've never been a fan of like extracting the maximum amount of. Yeah. Of value out of your customers because then you're vulnerable to competition and at some point the music will stop and if they don't see you as a partner and they don't like working with you and they see you as kind of the enemy, then they will switch off of your technology the, the soon as possible stage that they can. 
Yeah, 100% agree. It's just better, like, I mean, all negotiations, like, leave a little bit on the table. Yeah. Like, the other side should never feel like they got totally hosed, and you should never feel like you totally won, because yeah. then, like, everyone feels like, yeah, I gave a little bit, but I also got a little bit. Yeah, and, exactly. Because relationships matter. Yeah. And you know, you don't want your customers to begrudgingly give you the money and then hate you and you yeah, know, and like switch off the point, as, right? again. It's, it's, they'll switch off as soon as they can. Yeah, it's like long term, like you're creating a, like a bad dynamic with your customer, but like even short term, it's just like it's not worth the extra stress and the extra like pain and you know, you want to see a customer and they and they should be excited to see you, right? Yeah. They shouldn't, you know, walk in the direction or say bad things behind your back. So yeah, I totally agree. But it's again, it's hard because there's you know like you can get a lot of value out of a product with very little usage, and you want to capture some amount of that value as a, as a provider because you know you that's why you run a business you have to yeah. capture some of the value. So you know you've you've obviously grown and learned so much from you know your time at Amazon like as an engineer to becoming a founder, a CEO, a CTO, you know taking a company public like this whole like trajectory. When you kind of look back, you know, I mean, even from going from like someone who probably just thought about this as like an SMB mid market thing to like true enterprise, mm-hmm. what's like maybe a key thing that you've learned, or if there's some advice you want to impart on on folks listening that, that would kind of wrap some of that, that learning up? So one of the things that I I talk about and go to a lot is is the importance of culture and being culture is something that forms whether you like it or not. So I my recommendation is to be very intentional about it and start thinking about it and putting investing in it from an early stage. Like when it's just the say the two or three or four founders, you probably don't need to start spending a lot of time on it then. But once you start hiring people, then it really starts to matter. And it's good to have like a set of company values that you believe in that are not just things that are written up and posted on the wall, but things that that get operationalized, that matter when you're making decisions, that matter when you're hiring people, that matter when you're, say, doing like uh, yearly performance assessments or giving raises or looking at people's roles or all those things is are they actually embodying the cultural values. And I think it's okay to, to have a set of values that are true today, that are, you know, you're following and you're living every day, and then maybe have like one or two that are more aspirational, like you want to embody, but you're not quite there yet. And then you kind of put start putting a plan in place to do that and to get there. Like let's say you're, you know, you didn't invest a lot in customer support early on, but you you put a value around taking care of the customer, putting customers first, customer centricity, something along mm-hmm. those lines. Then it's something you can start building into the company and investing in over time. It doesn't have to be true, and that everything doesn't have to be true today. I love that. That's a great point. It's like you don't have to. It doesn't have to be a snapshot of where you are. It can yeah. be a combination of what you are, what you're doing, and where you want to go. Yes, absolutely. Uh, that's one. I would say uh, another one is around goal setting. So early on, we used OKRs, like objectives and key results. Now we're we're using a different framework called V2Mom, which is a Salesforce uh, right. framework, which is very similar to OKRs, except it also encompasses like the V2 is vision and values. So it also talks about that, and it doesn't really matter which framework you use as long as you use something. And it's it's the simple fact of. What are you going to do in the next time period? Let's say it's a month or a quarter. Uh, the smaller you are, the smaller your time period should be. Like you shouldn't plan for a quarter out. Maybe do a monthly or even biweekly. And look ahead of what you're going to do. Write it down, and then at the end of the period, 
compare what you actually did against what you said you were going to do and see how that stacks up. It's a great way to build accountability into the culture from from an early stage and and make sure that everyone's aligned around goals and what's really important. And then, you know, like resources are limited, so it also helps you focus and prioritize on what's really important and helps you inspire uh, inspire the folks around rallying towards a common goal. So if, you know, let's say we start with, I'll give you an example from Pager3, we started with on-call management and alerting and we want to make a big push into event management and be able to process all these data sets and add machine learning and smarts and intelligence into the, the equation, then maybe 2013 was the year of event intelligence. And we, we put a big focus there on our goals around launching a product and getting, say, 20 early customers using it and five testimonials. I'm just making stuff up here, but yeah, like uh, in order to kind of prove out the early success of that of that product. Yeah. And it's it's important to do that and and to also it's part of holding yourself accountable to your investors and showing them here's here's what we're planning to do for the next quarter and even thinking out a year ahead in terms of a more strategic longer term uh, trajectory like here's what we want to do this year. Mm-hmm. Cuz you certainly have to set financial goals especially if you have Investors and uh, share those with your with your board and your investors, and uh, you have to break that down from okay, what are we actually doing? What are the initiatives that are going to lead to us being able to hit those numbers that we set with the board? So that's another thing that's important. I, I would say, just on a more personal note, being able to invest in yourself as well into your own self learning. Like I think, I wish I had done more. I've done some in in my past in my last 10, 11 years of Pager Duty. Like. At times I've had a, an executive coach. I've built a network of folks around me who have a set of advisors. I never got to the point where I, I build any mentorship, mentor mentee type of relationships, but I wish I had, honestly. But being able to invest in that and invest in self learning because I rem- remembering that I started as an engineer and I had no management experience, no, not a lot of hiring experience, not a lot of like hiring executives, especially hiring execs who who yeah. you don't know their domain as well as they do. Yeah. So how do you know that they're good at their job? Those kinds of things are are tricky. You didn't so. hire many execs at Amazon. You didn't, <laughs> no, as a software engineer, yeah. no. <laughs> Yeah, that's actually one of the adv- uh, pieces of advice from one of our investors uh, really stuck with me, which is to do a calibration process for, let's say you're hiring a VP of sales or head of sales. So the idea is to do a process where you they introduce you to a whole bunch of VPs of sales, ones that have been successful, that have, are known to be good. And then you talk to them, you sit down and talk to them and ask them, like, hey, how do I hire one of you? Mm-hmm. What should I ask? What interview questions should I ask? Are there different flavors of VPs of sales? Like, are there, uh, in, in this case, yes, like there's probably ones that are more operationally focused, more numbers driven, more sales ops, like that's their strength versus there are folks who are more inspirational who can rally the team, especially at the end of the quarter to get everyone excited and motivated. And there's probably like multiple archetypes in each, each type of role. So it's learning like what what makes a good VP of sales in this case, and how do I evaluate that person, and then actually maybe even leveraging some of their advice and expertise or your investors' advice and expertise in the interview process. So mm. having them do interview some of these folks as well, just to double check, and then reference checks. So that's another piece of advice that I've gotten that has been super useful because. You know, I've never run a sales team myself. I've never headed a marketing department before. I've never been a CFO before. So, how do I hire all these people? Well, you just do a learning process at the beginning. Uh, that as part of that calibration, and then 
and then figure it out and then learn and then actually execute on it. No, that's all great. And I would actually, I, I, I take one issue. I, I'd say that you have established a bunch of mentors throughout your, your time. I think all these people you're talking about, these folks that have been advisors and investors and have helped sort of guide you along the way. Sure. I mean that's that's what it is. It doesn't have to be some one formal person. Like these are these are all people that have that have helped you kind of grow and expose you to new totally, things. Totally, totally. So. I just never had anyone that I called my mentor. Yeah, I, I guess yeah. I, I maybe I'm thinking of that relationship as a more formal relationship yeah. where I pay them or give them a little bit of stock. <laughs> and I've had lots of advisors, but nobody has been like a formal mentor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But in, I, with, the, I mean, with the title, if right? You will. But I mean, all these people, I mean, they've all like they've all been in that in that role, which sure. is great. It's a kind of a, a community of of people, and I'm yeah. sure you know as much as you've referenced them and you've kind of called them out for what they've helped you accomplish. It sounds like you're super appreciative of of what they've done for you too. Oh yeah, absolutely. And I've always taken the approach like, okay, I, I I'm a first time entrepreneur. I need to learn something new. I need to do something new. So let let me start by learning and surveying and seeing how other companies have done it because I'm sure I'm not the first to figure this problem out. So let's start there, let's learn, and then let's execute after we we know what to do. Let's not just charge ahead blindly. Well, uh, thank you so much for sharing all of this knowledge with you know everyone that's listening. Hopefully, they'll be able to do that same thing for their companies. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me on. That's all we have time for today. If you're interested in being a guest on this show, or if you'd like to suggest a topic, or just to learn more about enterprise features, find us at enterpriseready.io. To learn more about HeavyBit, visit heavybit.com to check out the library. It's packed with amazing talks on sales, marketing, product, and general management from founders of developer tools companies and other industry leaders. This podcast is also brought to you by my company, Replicated, where we enable cloud-native software vendors like HashiCorp, CircleCI, Sneak, and many others to operationalize and scale the distribution of their modern on-prem applications to their largest enterprise customers. Check us out at replicated.com.